This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you take a look at them, basically they're just a movie prop. What's the big deal? What makes the ruby slippers so popular isn't necessarily what they are, but what they represent. To millions of people, they represent getting together in front of the television to watch Dorothy go over the rainbow. They represent home, love, and security. And all of a sudden, you realize they are a big deal. When I would have the shoes on display, the people were just so thrilled to see them. And many times there were tears in their eyes when they saw the shoes. When I got the word that they were stolen, I literally became physically ill. I started hearing this garbage about how I was somehow connected with the robbery. That's just sheer meanness, absolute meanness. I mean, enough. I've, I've talked about it enough. I was innocent, and everybody knows it. I'm Sayward Darby. And I'm Arielle Ramchandani. Welcome to No Place Like Home. Episode 2, The Robin Hood of Hollywood. When we started following the story of the stolen ruby slippers... We thought we knew a lot about The Wizard of Oz. But really, we didn't. Because this movie and its legacy, they contain multitudes. But how do I start for Emerald City? It's always best to start at the beginning. We're going to take a cue from Glinda the Good Witch and start at the beginning. To understand how a pair of the ruby slippers wound up stolen, we're going to follow their path from a movie studio's costume department to fame so enormous, people would do anything to get close to them or possess them. So much of the story we're telling is about origins, roots, provenance. All of the Wizard of Oz fans we talk to have a memory of seeing the movie for the first time and falling in love. They felt something click. A part of them came alive. Nothing would ever be the same. I have been an Oz fan since I was five. And so from my sixth birthday on, anybody who wanted to buy me anything, if it was Judy or Oz, they were gold. This is John Fricky. He lives in Manhattan, near all the Broadway theaters. He's been in the same studio apartment for almost 47 years. I wanted to visit him, but he didn't have the space. His apartment has 21 bookcases inside. He's written seven books on Judy Garland and The Wizard of Oz. When I saw the Wizard of Oz movie, the very first telecast on November 3rd, 1956, I was sitting at my father's feet on the the living room floor. The only time I got up off the floor and climbed up into his lap was when the Wicked Witch sent the winged monkeys. Bring me that girl and her dog. That 
moment. Take your army to the haunted forest and bring me that girl and her dog. Take special care of those ruby slippers. I want those most of all. Now fly! The Wizard of Oz was one of the first blockbuster movies made specifically for young audiences. The children's book series it was based on, by L. Frank Baum, was Harry Potter-level famous. A lot of studios wanted to make a movie of The Wizard of Oz at that point because Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs had come out late in 1937 and proved that there was an audience for musical comedy fantasy. But to do it with live actors was the challenge, and MGM believed it could be done, and they believed it could be done with the girl they'd had under contract since she was 13 years old. You mean I'm... You've guessed it. You're Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Oh, Mr. Leroy... It can't be true. I I dreamed and hoped for a chance like this, but I never really thought I'd be so lucky. You're not lucky. We're the lucky ones. One of the key things about Judy Garland as an entertainer was that there was no artifice to Judy Garland when she was performing. She isn't coming yet, Toto. Did she hurt you? She tried to, didn't she? Immediately, you can identify with that angst of being concerned about something. You see her being more and more worried, wondering how she can find a place where there isn't any trouble. If there is such a place, she sings the song. Some place where there isn't any trouble. Do you suppose there is such a place, Toto? And then Dorothy is suddenly swept up and taken so far away that she is truly lost. Now, all of this happens before you even get to Technicolor. And you are so invested in that story because with Judy, there is no acting. She is really this girl. Judy Garland was one of the first teenage girls to have a leading role in a movie. People like to say she really was Dorothy. She was a girl from a small town, making her way in the big city, where everything was make-believe. It's a twister! In 1939, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, the studio behind The Wizard of Oz, was deep in the business of making magic. There was no CGI in 1938-39. Everything had to be made, quite literally in some cases, of whole cloth, as the old expression goes. They tried steam, they tried smoke, they tried water to make a tornado. Nothing worked until they came up with the idea of chicken wire wrapped into a gradually widening edifice covered in muslin and hung from the top of the soundstage. The bottom would be attached to a little motorized vehicle which would drive around and give the impression of the tornado swooping across the plains. There was dust blown up into the bottom of the funnel to create the debris. They had to make the winged monkeys fly. They had to make the Wicked Witch melt. The costuming, the makeup, so much had to be created and invented. There were no air-conditioned sound stages in those days, and Technicolor required huge, hot lights. There was an electrician with a light meter, a heat meter, who would go around to the thatched munchkin houses, the roofs, and the trees in the forest and say, no, no, you, you got to turn out the lights. It's too hot right now. You're going to start a fire. Side note, there was a fire. Margaret Hamilton, who played the Wicked Witch of the West, got second-degree burns during filming. The set of The Wizard of Oz was a crazy world of invention. It was kind of a bizarre Santa's workshop, with hundreds of craftspeople working full tilt. 
the movie went 65% over budget. The lighting alone cost more than entire films at the time. The end result was transporting. When the movie was first shown in theaters and Dorothy stepped from black and white into technicolor, audiences stood up and clapped. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. But for all the fanfare, the movie didn't get really famous for another two decades. What sent its popularity into the stratosphere was television. CBS bought the rights to broadcast the movie and started airing it every year during the holidays. Watching the film from the comfort of your own home became an annual tradition. Before long, the influence of Oz was everywhere. It's a proven fact that there is no more influential motion picture in history. There are more Wizard of Oz cross-references and paraphrases and line adaptations in other films, in sitcoms, in newscasts, on the Weather Channel. How many editorial cartoons have you seen over the years Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. (laughs) Everybody knows the Yellow Brick Road. Everybody knows the brainless scarecrow, the heartless tin man, the cowardly lion. The bottom line is that it is a journey, and all of us are on a journey from the day we're born till the day we die. In the original book, the shoes Dorothy wears on her journey are silver. But Technicolor was about thinking brighter. For the movie, silver wouldn't do. When MGM is going to spend all that money on a Technicolor film, they do not want black and white slippers as a focal point. So it was decided that sparkly red would look really good against a yellow brick road. And that's where that color switch came in. Please, sir. I've got to see the wizard. The good witch of the north sent me. Prove it. She's wearing the ruby slippers she gave her. Like Dorothy Gale and Judy Garland herself, the ruby slippers came from humble beginnings. They started as pairs of plain white pumps, made by the Innes Shoe Company in Los Angeles. They cost about $12. Craftspeople hand-sewed more than 2,000 red sequins to each shoe. After the movie wrapped, the shoes were relegated to storage. Props and costumes aren't meant to last. They might be immortalized on screen, but in real life, they're just stuff. Over the next few decades, as The Wizard of Oz became one of the most beloved movies in the world, nobody gave the actual slippers a second thought. Until one day, someone decided they had to. One of the great cautionary tales is Cleopatra. When 20th Century Fox made Cleopatra in 1962, it bankrupted 20th Century Fox. And they had to sell off some of their own property, their backlots, to fund the picture. And that was really the beginning of the demise of this old studio system. You know, all the old moguls were dying away. This is Reese Thomas. He wrote The Ruby Slippers of Oz, a definitive history of the shoes. In fact... He was the one who gave them their names, like the traveling shoes. What Reese is talking about with 20th Century Fox, the same thing was happening at MGM. Louis B. Mayer, the studio's namesake, had died. There were new owners in town. Wall Street began to take over. There was so much money involved in filmmaking and distribution that it was only natural that great financial institutions would become the bosses. And when it became all about the money and the bottom line, 
all this property needed to be shedded, property meaning the backlots of these studios. The studios began selling off their land, and when they had to sell their land, they had to liquidate what was on it. And that was when they started throwing things away. In downtown Los Angeles, there's an overpass. Four freeways come together, and they all sort of intertwine, kind of like, you know, pieces of spaghetti. Well, part of the foundation of the four level were truckloads of photographs, music scores, you know, financial records that were all buried beneath the four level just to get rid of them cleanly and forever. It's like, uh, you know, when you sell a house, you gotta, you gotta clean everything out. And are you gonna save everything? Is everything worth saving? Some people thought it was. They started scavenging in warehouses, trunks, and closets, looking for costumes and props from the movies they loved. And there was one person who cared more than anyone else about saving movie artifacts. He even had a nickname, the Robin Hood of Hollywood. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts. The team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I was an actor for many, many years. There are times I can't even remember some of the movies that I, I'll be watching something on television, you know, on, on Turner or on the movie channel, and I'm looking and saying, why is this familiar? I say, oh my God, that's me. This is Michael Shaw. You heard him at the beginning of the episode. He's a memorabilia collector now, but once upon a time, he was a child actor. When we visited Shaw in Los Angeles, he was wearing a Lion King t-shirt. His apartment is full of film memorabilia. From The Wizard of Oz, he has Dorothy's gingham dress and the Wicked Witch's black hat. He has a lot more, but we'll stop there. Shaw asked us not to describe too many of his items. His collection started 50 years ago, when a friend who worked in costumes at a movie studio invited him to essentially go dumpster diving. Studio execs didn't care what they took. To them, less clutter was a good thing. On one of the films that I worked on, I met this young fellow in charge of uh, the wardrobe department named Kent Warner. He called me up one day and he said, get your butt over here. You can't believe what I've been told to get rid of. Kent and I became very good friends and he was the one trying to save as many things as he could. Right outside of the wardrobe department are huge piles of costumes and clothes. And I was going through it, and then I said, hey, this is a great London fog trench coat, which I wanted for myself. 
I opened it up and I went, whoa! There in a Warner Brothers label is the name H. Bogard. And this was under a big sign that said to be incinerated. One of the employees pulled a complete Robin Hood outfit with Errol Flynn's name in it from boots up to cap to be incinerated. I ask you, is that not destroying your heritage? Shaw ended up keeping Humphrey Bogart's trench coat. He still wears it sometimes. I've worn it, but uh, I mainly keep it uh, in storage because it is a, a very important piece of Hollywood. Oh, I also, uh, Kent also found um, his fedora. So I got that too. The Robin Hood of Hollywood, as Kent Warner came to be known, got the job of his dreams in 1970. That year, there was a massive auction intended to clear MGM's backlot. The auctioneers from the David Weiss Company thought the furniture would be valuable. It was something people could actually use. But they didn't know what to do with the rest of what was there. So they hired Kent, with his growing reputation as a costume expert, to catalog everything. Here's Reese Thomas again. David Weiss didn't know what to do with the costumes. He had no experience with them. They were astounded by Kent's knowledge of, of the costumes. He could look at a dress and tell him what picture it was from, what star had worn it. He was just very well educated in the history of Hollywood memorabilia at a time when nobody else was, or very, very few people were. He was hired on, but he really sought the job because he knew that MGM was the home of the Wizard of Oz, and he loved Judy Garland. And more than anything else, what he wanted to find were the ruby slippers. The Wizard of Oz costumes had all been packed up and put into deep storage. And he had an idea that there might be multiple pairs, but he didn't know how many pairs had survived over the many years. And nobody knew where they were. So Kent went hunting. And he hunted all over the back lots, all of the storage areas. And he finally came to a building that they had called Ladies' Character Wardrobe, which in fact was the old barn, Mr. Culver's barn. And so Kent went climbing up into the barn, his nose getting all full of dust. And a ray of light came through a window panel and it sparkled on something. And he looked and the sparkle was from some sequins on shoes. And sure enough, there were the ruby slippers. Kent probably put them all very carefully into a duffel bag, walked off the lot. And the next time he saw the auctioneers, he said, look what I found, a pair of ruby slippers. He didn't say he found four pairs. He didn't say he found the only pair. He just said he found a pair. And he let them think they were the only pair. And he had open permission to keep anything he wanted. You know, because I would hear these terrible stories later about him stealing. He never stole anything. 
Anyway, Kent found all of the ruby slippers. He found all of the dresses, the Dorothy dresses, even the test dresses that uh, were used for the film. And the witch's outfit, especially the hat. And uh, Kent took the ruby slippers, the one that was in the worst condition, to David Wise. Wise didn't even know what they were. He said, but, but David, these are the ruby slippers from the Wizard of Oz. He said, what's the Wizard of Oz? Well, listen, the wise come and they were used to auctioning off machinery from farms. So, I mean, what did they know about gowns or, or ruby slippers? There they are. $1,000 two. $2,000 I'm bid the shoes three. The slippers were the stars of the auction. Kent Warner paraded them around at the preview on a little red velvet pillow. He was clearly having the time of his life. They ended up selling for $15,000, which is the equivalent of about $100,000 in 2021. $15,000 I bid once, $15,000 I bid twice. And they are sold the bidder's number, please. That pair eventually went to the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. They're known as the People's Shoes. There's a pair at the Smithsonian in Washington, an anonymous gift. The pair that Warner kept for himself is considered the nicest one. Experts believe it was used in the close-ups at the beginning of the movie, when the Wicked Witch of the East is crushed under Dorothy's house. Friends remember that Warner placed the slippers in a corner of his home, under a light, where they were sure to grab guests' attention. For years, his social scene revolved around movies and collecting. People sometimes asked if there was something intimate going on with, between us. No, we were just very good friends. What I would do, I had a, I had a 16 millimeter projector here at my home and I had contacts at uh, the different film rentals. And every, oh, once or twice a month, I'd rent something like Singing in the Rain, and we'd have our friends over, and we'd have potluck, and we'd bring out some of the costumes or things that we had from that movie. And it was really a lot of fun. We had such a good time. But at some point, things soured. The MGM auction made the wider world more interested in Hollywood memorabilia, and items from classic movies, including the Ruby Slippers, started accruing value. Studios realized their mistake. They thought they'd been sitting on a trash heap, but really, they'd been sitting on a gold mine. Execs started to accuse people like Warner of stealing. Within the budding collecting community, things got ugly as well. People started making copies and counterfeits, ripping labels off items. As time went on and more people came in, it just became a big business and all the fun was gone out of it. And Kent and I drifted apart. I went to work for Universal. And one day I'm down on the lower lot by the commissary and I hear someone yell, Michael! And I took a look and Kentala! I used to call him Kentala. And we were like two old college buddies that hadn't seen each other for years. We couldn't stop hugging each other. And remember this and remember that because we were so excited, bringing back some many, many happy memories. Then I didn't see him on the set for a while until one day, again, I was down by the commissary and I hear Michael 
And I turned around and my jaw dropped. Here was this emaciated, I don't even want to talk about it, but he was in the final stages of, of AIDS and uh, it just broke my heart. So much for that, okay? Kent Warner died of an AIDS-related illness in 1984. His influence is still deeply felt. Without him, there would be much less Hollywood memorabilia left in the world. The ruby slippers might have been lost or destroyed. By the time he died, Warner had sold his pair of slippers at another auction for $12,000. People said he hoped the money would help pay for his medical treatment. They also said the allure of the shoes had overwhelmed him. Visitors had stopped coming to his home to see him. They just wanted to see the ruby slippers. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. By the 1980s, the known pairs of ruby slippers were scattered widely. Some were sold to new buyers and then sold again. They got more and more valuable. Roberta Bauman of Memphis won them in a fan magazine contest when she was 16 years old. I just feel like that now's the time to let someone else enjoy them. As the auction proceeded, it became very clear that bidding would go somewhere over the rainbow. 145. It's only money. <laughs> the shoes finally went for $150,000, a record for movie memorabilia. Today, the slippers were sold at a New York auction for $165,000, a record for a pair of shoes. But there was one person who never sold his pair, Michael Shaw. Back in 1970, he got his hands on the last set of shoes Kent Warner had found. The deal was so messy, it's become the stuff of legend in the memorabilia world. One side of the story goes like this. Film icon Debbie Reynolds, star of Singing in the Rain, wanted to buy the last pair of slippers. Debbie was just shocked by the fact that the studio was liquidating all the costumes and props and you know, beautiful sets, even the vehicles, the boats, the trains. It broke her heart to see MGM, the studio where she grew up, where she was a child star and had done so many films, that they were just basically throwing everything away. Michael Shaw, as a friend of Warner's, 
was supposed to help transfer the items to Reynolds. But instead, he kept them. And that began a very quiet feud between Kent Warner, Michael Shaw, and Debbie Reynolds about who should, you know, have those shoes. But Shaw remembers things differently. He says the items were always intended for him because Warner knew how much he loved the Wizard of Oz. God Almighty, it was was the deal of the century. I got a beautiful pair of ruby slippers. I got one of the the dresses. I got the witch's hat. Uh, I got a munchkin outfit. And then he also threw in a couple of other costumes from other films, uh, from like Marie Antoinette. And uh, it was a phenomenal deal, just incredible. And I am not going to tell you what I paid for it. Shaw also has the Maltese Falcon and the portrait of Laura, but the shoes are his biggest triumph. So I have to keep the shoes uh, in a bank vault. The items Shaw got from Kent Warner became the basis of his touring memorabilia show. For over 25 years, audiences across America lined up to see his ruby slippers, the traveling shoes. In 2005, Shaw dropped them off at the Judy Garland Museum in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. It would be the slippers' last stop on Michael Shaw's Hollywood tour. An empty pedestal was all that was left when the slippers were stolen from the Judy Garland Museum. They were loaned to the museum this summer, but they were stolen sometime Saturday night or Sunday morning when the museum was closed. I called Michael Shaw and uh, told him, and he said, "Get the get the press rolling. We gotta we gotta get the word out. Find him." Before it's too late. That was his big concern to get the, the press rolling. That's John Kelsch, the museum's director, talking about the day after the theft. Shaw came to Grand Rapids a few days later with his sister. When he got there, all kinds of theories were already flying around. When you showed up in Grand Rapids and people were saying, oh, we have no idea where they are, they could be the destroyed. Did you have any thoughts about what happened? Like, Hun, how could I have any feeling when, first of all, I'm told that they were stolen for a big collector? I was also told they had been destroyed. I, I mean, either thrown into a river. Or th- I mean, what was I supposed to think? I was being lied to left and right by everybody connected with it in Grand Rapids. Why do you think they were lying to you? know, like, what, what, Hun, I don't want you, to... I'm getting upset about it, you know, reliving this thing. So please, uh, enough is enough. I, I just don't want to talk about the theft anymore. Emotions were running high. There were questions about who was liable, and before long, there was a lawsuit. The company that had insured the shoes sued the museum and Shaw. But it turned out that the company had made a clerical error in the policy on the shoes. In the end, it shook out like this. The museum was off the hook. It didn't have to pay a dime. And Shaw, he got $800,000 from the insurance company. That was a lot of money. And to some people, especially in the memorabilia world, it seemed like maybe Shaw had planned to get the payout all along. I thought thought it was Michael Shaw that had taken him. Michael Shaw doesn't exactly tell the truth. This is Glenn Brown. He worked the MGM auction in 1970 and was also friends with Kent Warner. His theory is that the ruby slippers Michael Shaw toured with were fakes and that he orchestrated the theft to get doubly rich. He had them insured for a million dollars. Now, who would lend a 
million dollar pair of ruby slippers to a museum that doesn't have an alarm system. <laughs> I think the ones that were there through this whole thing weren't the real ones they had been replaced. And the real ones were stashed away and hidden. The owner, Michael Shaw, was a little crazy. And I, I remember thinking for a while, maybe it was him wanting to collect the insurance money, to be honest. Here's Michael Seward, a collector of Judy Garland memorabilia. He knows how gossipy and vicious the collecting world can be. He told me a story about some guy once threatening to break his legs over a Judy Garland dress. Another collector accused Seward of stealing the shoes. Seward even got a call from law enforcement. But from the start, he suspected Shaw. Michael Shaw and I worked together in Kansas at a Wizard of Oz festival. And he was very um, self... um, I don't know the correct word. He liked to talk about himself, who he had known. I, I could never get two words in edgewise. I told him about a costume that I was wanting from for me and my gal. Had he ever seen or known of it? And he said, oh, I own it. I own it. And I'll sell it to you one day. I'll sell it to you one day. And he always threw that out there, that he had it in a closet. He wanted me to see it. And, no, you can't come and look at it now. No, I don't want to show it to you. Yes, come and look. It was always a cat and mouse game with him. He always used people and things and names and places to play games with people, to play mind games. But while some people thought the insurance payout made him look guilty, Shaw felt it proved he was innocent. After two years, the insurance company finally paid off. And I said, don't you realize the insurance company investigated me 10 days till Sunday? I said, they wouldn't have given me a nickel if they thought that I was involved. But an insurance company isn't a detective agency. It didn't solve the crime. It didn't close the book on Shaw or anyone else, including people at the Judy Garland Museum. Everybody in Grand Rapids had a theory about the crime. And a lot of people were of the same opinion. Whoever did this had to be local. When you visit the Judy Garland Museum, you walk away thinking that Grand Rapids must cherish its native daughter. But if you talk to people around town, you'll find that's not entirely true. Despite her fame, or perhaps because of it, Judy Garland isn't universally beloved. And neither is the museum created in her honor. Next time on No Place Like Home. I was born in uh, Grand Rapids, Minnesota, a very small town on the Iron Range. I was very aware of a peacefulness. I really don't think she would have became a star unless they had been kicked out of town. Her history is so misunderstood because it has never been adequately explained. Her mother was in charge of everything. Makeup and hair at home, studio, rehearse, film, school. You're going film, out on the school, road again? Film, she goes, I have to. I have to do it. Keep her working. Keep her working. You can be adored by 100,000 people. And then you go back to your dressing room and you're all alone. That was Judy. 
But see, that's where I was coming from, trying to convince people how important she is. They did not want the town to brand itself as the birthplace of Judy Garland. I've been insulted, slandered, humiliated, but still America's sweetheart. Grand Rapids is known for Judy Garland. Judy Garland is the slippers. The slippers are Judy Garland. I don't know why we don't have the slippers painted on our water tower, honestly. No Place Like Home is a presentation, direction, and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio, in partnership with The Atavist Magazine. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran. Written by Ariel Ramshandani. Narrated by Ariel Ramshandani and me, Sayward Darby. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Edited by Alistair Sherman. Produced by Paige Heimson and Valerie Thomas. Engineering, research, and production support by Adam Pershibil, Bill Schultz, Ian Mont, Bob Tabador, Patrick Antonetti, and Sean Cherry. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Marketing and publicity by Brian Swarth, Hilary Schiff, Melissa Wester, and Meredith Tiger. Series artwork by Kurt Courtenay. Season one of No Place Like Home is based on reporting by Ariel Ramshandani for The Atavist Magazine. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.